the content on there is so diverse um, from, yes, the stupid dance videos and really ridiculous jokes to really funny, creative, clever, well-produced content to a whole lot of educational material. And I have always felt like education does not need to stay within the institution. I think if we're really doing our jobs, education needs to, information needs to go to where the people are. Um, and, and that's why I worked with extension for so long because I felt like it met that mission very well. But, uh, TikTok is, you know, like it or not, that is where our next generation of, um, academics and scientists and, and leaders in our community, that's where they are. Greetings, fellow explorers, and welcome to the 19th episode of Kikoscopy 101, the podcast that explores the nexus between science, story, wonder, and philosophy with me, your host, Dr. Yanis Kisten. And today, we're exploring plants, plant people, and podcasting with the plant prof himself, Dr. Vikram Baliga of Plantropology. Okay, welcome to the show, Dr. Baliga. How are you doing? I am doing really well today. Uh, trying to stay warm. It's, it's getting pretty cold here where I live, but I'm, I'm doing well overall. Yeah, we had a, a little bit of a chat earlier about how different our weather situations are right now. You guys are freezing there and I'm busy melting away, yeah. And so that's the interesting thing about being able to communicate so far across the, the world so easily. So much different perspectives that can come together at a, at a single point in time. Yeah, absolutely. We... Um, you know, I'm in, I'm in the U.S. in uh, Texas and I think people typically think that it's pretty hot in Texas. And that's, and that's true for most of the state, but it's a big state. And, uh, we have this huge cold front coming in today and it's looking like we may hit temperatures, um, this weekend of negative five Fahrenheit, which is about negative 20, 21 Celsius and, uh, get, you know, eight to 10 inches of snow. It's, it's going to be a, quite an adventure. Jeez Louise, I've never experienced negative temperatures at all never mind minus 20 it's crazy <laughs> it's 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 pretty crazy we we have big swings so we'll on average our you know annual low is around negative 10 negative 15 celsius um and we'll in the summer sometimes hit 45 uh so we have a a very big temperature range here in my part of the state Indeed, and make, I'm sure it makes for interesting uh, plant biology and botany. So let's get into that. <laughs> so tell us a bit about who you are, Dr. Baliga, and what you do in this moment. So uh, I want to start off by, by saying I like the way you ask that question. I've listened to a couple episodes now, and I like that you say, who are you and what do you do in this moment? Because we you know, all have pretty winding paths to get to where we are, and life changes a lot. So that's... Uh, I've, I've not often heard that question asked in that way. And I like that. Um, but yeah, I, I am a, um, lecturer and, um, greenhouse manager at Texas tech university. So I teach introductory horticulture, um, one of the lectures in a lab, sometimes a couple of labs, and I manage our teaching and research greenhouse for the uh, Department of Plant and Soil Science, as well as our um, horticultural gardens. So we have, uh, you know, a, um, a fairly large greenhouse, eight greenhouse com um, compartments, two, four classrooms, 
um, some other research facilities here, as well as about a hectare of horticultural garden that surrounds it. So I oversee that, work with student assistants to keep it managed and all of that. And then I, I teach in our department as well. Okay. How do, what sparked um, the idea of getting into plant biology, botany, horticulture? How did that whole journey come about? It's, it's interesting. So I, um, I actually, at least for my academic career, I started off in uh, biomedical engineering. Um, I wanted to uh, be a doctor, design prosthetics. My, uh, my granddad, on my, my grandfather on my mom's side, as well as my grandmother, were both uh, doctors. And um, so I did a year of that when I started my undergrad. And I realized I'm not very good at calculus and I don't really like blood. And those things were going to be a problem in engineering and medicine. <laughs> sure. And yeah. so I was, I was, you know, 19 years old and I, I felt like I had already, you know, completely lost my direction in life. And so I talked to an advisor and um, he just asked, what do you like to do? What do you enjoy? And um, some of my earliest memories growing up were um, gardening with my grandfather. And, uh, you know, there's, there's pictures of me at two or three years old growing corn and uh, squash and tomatoes in the backyard, just, just playing in the dirt. And, uh, so I started to think if, you know, if, if I can't maybe follow his footsteps in medicine, I can, um, follow his footsteps in the plant sciences. And so, um, he was, he was a doctor at a time when there were, less regulations. And so I remember as a kid, um, um, spending summers and other time with him at his clinic and uh, until he was unable to do so, he, uh, he, he has, his clinic was in a lower income part of the city that, that we live in. And uh, he would accept vegetables or, um, honestly, whatever people could bring in as payment for his medical services. He would just, you know, he would come home all the time with a basket of tomatoes and potatoes and onions and different things. And, you know, I, I think it always drove my grandmother crazy because potatoes don't necessarily pay the electric bill, but uh, he felt like a, an inability to pay um, was not a reason or to pay in a traditional sense was not a reason to, to deny someone care. And so he would take whatever people could give. And so growing up, I always, you know, had this appreciation for food and plants and those kinds of things. And so, uh, I guess I, through that, I did my undergraduate degree in, um, horticulture. I studied landscape design. Uh, my master's was in horticulture studying, um, uh, I, I guess drought tolerance in production olive trees. And then I just finished my PhD in, in plant sciences, looking at um, urban water conservation. So in, in this, in the urban setting in the home landscape, all of that, how do we motivate people to, to save water and what technologies can help us do that? Hmm, that's interesting. I do similar type of research but on the far downstream i mean estuarine fish mm. biologist um a recent concept that we've actually come up with in our um technical reports and stuff is that we are trying to get this idea out that um an estuary a river and even downstream into the coastal ecosystem also has a right to water just like people have uh, have rights 
And I think that's that's quite an interesting thing that I'm hoping gets some some traction. Maybe people will understand that easier than to just say, okay, we need some water to flow down all the way down uh, into the estuary so that, you know, the ecosystem can function. I think that's that's very fascinating. And, and you know, one of the messages we try to send um, through some of our water, conser- water conservation education we do is that, uh, you know, nothing we do exists in a vacuum. And the water you pump out of the aquifer or from a municipal system goes somewhere. You know, it either goes into the ground where you put it or it evaporates and blows away uh, or it ends up in a storm drain and uh, eventually in a river. And so things we use in the landscape, like um, it's not even just a a question of water quantity, but quality as well. So if we're using too many fertilizers or other products, pesticides in the landscape, that eventually ends up in a waterway somewhere. And so the, the message we try to send is that is not to not use water, but to be as efficient with it and as conservative with, um, all of our resource practices as we can be because everything we do is connected to something else. And we don't know sometimes the downstream com- downstream consequences until much later. And potentially un- until it's too late and then everything's messed up. Right. So well, one of the big reasons why you're on this podcast is I'm very interested in scientists who are using new media to to convey and, and communicate their science. And you've gravitated towards podcasting and I think more recently TikTok. So how did the idea mm-hmm. to convey your message through podcasting come about? So um, I I think in the grand scheme of things, I'm a fairly recent adopter of podcasts. Uh, it's only in the past two or three years, really, that I've listened to podcasts, been involved with them in any way. Um, as opposed to a lot of stories you hear that someone's like, oh, I grew up listening to podcasts, all that. I'm, I'm, I, I got into it because a friend told me one time, you need to listen to this, this Harry Potter podcast. And I'm, you know, uh, I, I think there's no question that I'm a nerd, so I'm not outing myself as far as that goes, but, uh, there's a nerds and geeks. So don't feel shy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So there's a podcast called Potterless where this guy as an adult goes back and, and reads through the Harry Potter books for the first time. And, um, they, they, It's pretty funny, uh, but it's interesting hearing that I grew up reading those books. And so getting to hear that from a different perspective was interesting. And that kind of got me into listening to podcasts. And then I found um, a science podcast called Ologies, which is one of the biggest science shows now, you know, in the world. Um, But the host, Allie Ward, is a genius at science communication. She she's brilliant in the way she approaches it from a casual and um, very approachable standpoint. And she talks to scientists on her show like they're actual human beings, which shouldn't be something that's revolutionary. But in a lot of ways, it kind of is. Right? We in society draw all these lines between um, the the quote unquote public and the scientific community when you know, we're, we're part of that same community. We just, you know, do different activities that generate information. And so mm-hmm. I, I started listening to that show and started somewhere in the back of my head, getting the idea that, oh, you could do something like this specifically in the plant sciences or natural sciences. And 
I was, um, at the greenhouse. I run a, um, friend was up here one day and we were talking about, um, a specific kind of tree, a, a mesquite tree and how it related to life in this part of the world. Um, with the indigenous peoples that were here and how they used it as a protein source and how they managed it and all of those different things. And at the end of this conversation, I was like, man, we're, we're the biggest nerds, but I think people would love to listen to something like this. And so we kind of, I said, we should start a podcast and we kind of laughed about it and it went away for a while. But a few months later in, in late 2019, I started to think about, it. I said, no, you know, we unfortunately, um, generate all this information we have all this knowledge at the in the university setting and we don't really do a great job of taking that and closing the feedback loop um you know, the taxpayer pays for our research largely and then we take that research and generate knowledge that we don't give back to them and we do a lot of gatekeeping and we do a lot of that kind of thing in academia and i just thought it'd be a great way to Take some of these nerdy plant conversations and interesting things I hear from my colleagues and different scientists and, and, and people in the industry and, and tell that story of one, what are we doing? You know, what does the science say? But two, for someone in the industry, 20 years into their career, five years into their career, still in school, why do they care? Why are they passionate about it? What, um, aspects of their jobs and of their lives keep them interested in the natural sciences and the plant sciences. And uh, I, I felt that was a story we don't always tell our students well. Uh, you know, we give them the information and maybe leave a little bit of a hole sometimes with, okay, what do you do with it? How do you, how do you go get a job? What job are you going to love for the rest of your life? You know, that kind of thing. So I just wanted to talk and have casual conversations with people in the field, whether they're in industry or in academia, um, in everything from water to soils to food production and anything and everything else that I can find that's in between there. And uh, yeah, I'm about a year and a half in. Uh, my university and department's been super supportive of it. And it's been really just a great experience. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that you've... Well, are they involved in any way or are they just aware of, of the show do any of your colleagues <laughs> so that's a good question um i i don't necessarily recommend doing things you know and then asking for forgiveness later but that is often how i do things so i just started the show i said you know we'll see how it goes and um a couple episodes in i talked to my department chair about it and he said, I think this is a great idea. How can we support you? So they have been supporting in terms of, of uh, you know, equipment and um, podcast hosting and promotion and all of that. But also he said, you know, if there's any ways I can help you better work with our faculty and our staff and our current and former students to get some of these messages out, you know, we're using it in some ways as a, an interpretation tool and a, even a theoretical recruiting tool in our department, mm -hmm. but, um, he was very flexible, our department chair and our department in general with the way I approach it. It wasn't just, you can only interview people at the university. You can only talk to these specific people. It's, it's more of a tell a good story. And in that, if we can promote the things that we're doing 
um, that's great. So he was, uh, he has been very forward thinking in the way we approach it. Um, he's very passionate about making sure that we get the information out into the world, however we can. And, um, looking at the, the university's strategic plan for the next five to 10 years, that's going to become a bigger and bigger part of it is like public outreach and, uh, interpretation of results and that kind of thing. So, so I've gotten a lot of great support, um, from our, from my colleagues, but as well as from our administration on that. It's really cool. It's very open-minded and and forward-thinking. Um, I wouldn't even know how to to bring this kind of stuff to my university management. Um, I think some people are aware that I do podcasts and stuff. But obviously, I'm not doing anything that's related to my field of study necessarily. So it's quite different. But still, I mean, the most that i mean in my opinion that the university does is like newsletters you know we have the local like university radio station um email blasts and you know the occasional article in, in the paper for whatever reason but actual uh podcasting making videos and stuff like that i feel like um, at least in my uh, experience with South African University, still in its infancy. Um, and I'm hoping that it picks up um, throughout throughout the world, not only um, here, because it is a very direct line of communication between researchers and investigators and journalists and public um, that we haven't had, you know, in the past decades you know since before the advent of of the internet so it's really cool that university is quite involved yeah and and you know i uh <laughs> I, I maybe struggle to say no to things sometimes but um our public media department um is our local public broadcasting affiliate right so they mm. they do radio and television and um now digital media more and more <laughs> And one of the radio producers from um, our, our affiliates called KTTZ, uh, Texas Tech Public Media, uh, wanted to. So she, I've gotten involved in another show. I guess is what I'm kind of going towards. And and this producer is a sort of a novice gardener. She is trying to learn how to grow a little bit of food, garden on her own. Um, on a on a very small budget, right? How do you use recycled materials and all of those save, mm. save seeds, all of those kinds of things? And she thought it would be cool to start a show where she sort of documents her journey into gardening, into growing her own food, and and all of that. So mm. I've gotten involved with that sort of as a um, quote unquote expert contributor or whatever. And so uh, she she documents her. Um, process and I come in and talk about the science behind it. But we are now talking about how do we produce like fun videos in relation to that? We're uh, thinking mm -hmm. about doing this. You've probably seen online, they do like reaction videos, right? Where somebody yeah. watches. Uh, uh, and and so we're, we're thinking about doing some of that and watching some of these completely absurd gardening videos that pop up on Facebook and, mm -hmm. and Twitter sometimes and, you know, reacting to those, but then mm -hmm. talking about, okay, here's some, some, you know, you can't, turn a banana into a kiwi or whatever, but oh, here's some actual gardening tips <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that go along with it. For sure. And so, um, we have, I think at, at our university right now, a really great team of people across the university 
that are trying to find new and innovative and exciting ways to tell the story of science and the story of, of what we do here. And it's really exciting. It's exciting to get to be a part of it. Sure, that sounds pretty cool. I'll be one of the first to subscribe when it comes out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool. Plant, plant reactions. So, like, what what is a, a day in your life like? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Because you tell me you do some lecturing, um, but you're also a manager in a greenhouse. So how does that work? Uh, it's, it's, it's a challenge some days. So I started with the university. I did my master's here at the same university. But um, after my master's, I went out, worked in industry, did a few different things, and Started working on my PhD in 2000, oh gosh, 15, I guess. And so it's kind of a slow process. But uh, a few years ago, this position came open for the greenhouse manager and I decided to go for it. I was working full time. I've worked full time all the way through my PhD. And um, I was working um, for the extension service here in Texas. This position came up and I, I had done all of my master's research in this greenhouse. And I was like, oh, how cool would it be to get to go and manage this place. It was like coming home in some ways. And so I ended up getting the job and, you know, spent two years sort of finishing my PhD while working in this position. And then now I have taken on teaching roles. So I teach two days a week and then do greenhouse stuff the rest of the time. So I'm kind of on a 50, 50 appointment. Um, I keep a staff of student assistants here that Honestly, and I, I don't tell them this too much so they can't they don't try to get rid of me, but they're mm-hmm. they're great. They could probably run this place without me if they needed to, you know, except that they mm-hmm. need my uh, my purchasing card to go get material sometimes. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, in general authorization. Yeah. I've got a great staff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I've got a great staff though that lets me do what I do. And uh so on a day-to-day basis, it it kind of depends what day it is, but we um Our facility is primarily a teaching facility. And so we facilitate labs for our introductory horticulture class, which is also what I teach. Um, Floral design, uh, entomology, um, weed and pest management, a few other things. So on a normal semester, which we will hopefully have again someday, I run about 500 students through my greenhouse every week. Uh, We have a pretty active... Uh, you know, um, teaching regimen out here, but we also uh, facilitate a lot in house and facilitate a lot of graduate student research and faculty research. So I like to say we, we teach our undergraduates about science. We teach our master's students how to do science. And then we teach our PhD students how to do science for themselves. And we facilitate all of that here at our facility. So uh, on an average day, I may be, you know, working with my staff to get, um, plant materials sourced and organized for our labs or uh, working on organizing our classrooms, the flow of the, you know, students through here, maintaining our teaching garden. Um, But then I also help uh, order materials, facilitate research, do some, um, a little bit of experimental design assistance and those kinds of things with our graduate students and all of that. So uh, everything we do is teaching. We just approach it in a different way. So I, I think of my job in general as how do I, uh, it, it, I, I think, I, I think of myself as an educator across the board, whether I'm teaching or working in the greenhouse, but my greenhouse responsibilities I think of is how do I create the best 
and most efficient learning and research environment for our students. And so mm-hmm. everything we do out here goes towards that. Um, better displays in the garden, um, better equipment and facilities indoors, uh, making sure our plant materials are cared for, investing in new technologies. And so I think of everything I do as education, we just I just have to approach it in a couple of different ways. Mm. Do you use any new media, new technology in your actual teaching? Um, yet or is it still old school? Um, we are having to, because of the pandemic, uh, uh, integrate some new technology tools. Um, we had a, a, a former faculty member who retired a couple of years ago named um, Dr. Cynthia McKinney, who about 15, at least 15 years ago, had the foresight to start investing in our department in distance education. So we were one of the first in the university to really pour time and effort into um, distance ed. And so for years now in our department, you've been able to get a complete bachelor's and master's degree completely online through our department. And so when the pandemic hit and everything had to go online, we were kind of already set up to do it because we'd already been doing it for years. And so... Uh, yeah, we use lots of videos. We do YouTube and, and you know Zoom communication. We um, try to teach through uh, maybe not new media in terms of like podcasts and TikTok, but we, we integrate social media where we can. And um, I think try to provide an experience for our students where they're trained in the science, but they're also trained in um, interpreting and communicating that science as well. Sure. You just mentioned um, TikTok, which is a relatively new social media, I think, on the on the landscape. Um, how did you get into making content for that? <laughs> um, so I'm probably in the grand scheme of things way too. Like I'm like twice the age of most of the people on TikTok. You know, I'm in my 30s yeah. now, and uh, I think just like so many people that have been stuck in quarantine for a year, I got bored and I was like, I'm going to try a new thing. Mm. You know, I've always been a big fan of social media. I do a lot of social media between Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. And I have for years. Um, But, but TikTok was one of these things that I was maybe a little scared of at first because I was like, oh, I'm just the old guy. It's all kids doing stupid dances. (laughs) Um, and, and, And that was before I really got into it, right? Like, uh, I, I was of the, I was of the vine generation. So when vine died mm. and they were like, TikTok's the new thing. I think I was like the grumpy old man, like hanging <laughs> on to uh, the six second yeah. vine videos. But, um, no, but I, but then I start. I got bored one day and I was like, okay, I'm going to download the app. I'm going to see what's going on. And the content on there is so diverse, um, from yes, the stupid dance videos and really ridiculous jokes to really funny creative, clever, well-produced content to a whole lot of educational material. And I have always felt like education does not need to stay within the institution. I think if we're really doing our jobs, education needs to, information needs to go to where the people are. Um, and, and that's why I worked with extension for so long because I felt like it met that mission very well. But, uh, TikTok is, you know, like it or not, that is where our next generation of um, academics and scientists and, and leaders in our community, that's where they are. 
right? So they're not on Facebook. Facebook's not cool anymore. Twitter's kind of not cool anymore. Uh, Instagram is barely cool anymore. And so if we want to keep giving the right message and showing new opportunities to the next generation of people who are going to sit in our classrooms and stand behind the podiums and work in our labs, we have to take that information where they are. And so I'm a fairly recent adopter to TikTok. I don't know that I'm very good at it. I don't really have a very big following yet, but I am trying my best to produce, you know, bite-sized content that teaches that's funny as much as I can be, um, entertaining, but also delivers little like snippets of information. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on making it as accessible as I can, making sure I'm captioning everything, doing all that so that the people that need to see that, Hey, plants in the environment are still cool. Like we should still care about that stuff. Um, Mm. I I want the people that need to see it that are our future decision makers to see it now, um, before they make their mind up on what their worldview is like. I want plants and nature and science to be part of the next generation's worldview as they decide how to be adult grown-up decision-making humans. For sure. And I think that, you know, just like from a plain like marketing perspective, like if you just look at age groups, like the data is there and everybody's going to tell you that if you are targeted towards the younger generation, TikTok is where they all are, you know? So it just makes sense, I think, from a data perspective. And I think, you know, the whole perception, I think, from the older crowd is is always that, you know, just get off my lawn mentality that I think everybody uh, <laughs> gets as they get older. Um, so yeah, I mean, the thing is like, if you wanted to aim your content at an older audience, you'd probably go to Facebook, you know, if, if you want to aim your content at, Mm -hmm. at, you know, contemporary, you're probably going to Instagram, um, and, and Twitter. So it's, it, when it comes down to just the numbers and the data, it just makes sense. I think it just takes some, like people getting over themselves to realize (laughs) <laughs> that if they if they want to market to the younger audience, they're probably gonna have to do it on TikTok. Um so I think it's a smart move. I haven't figured out how I would deliver bite uh, bite-sized content myself. Cause I like I just like long form content. I like consuming it and I conform I, I like making it. Um but I'm I'm thinking about it. Um yeah, no, and and I th- I think that that's not a bad thing. You know, I, I think about this a lot. That we try really hard as a society, you know, generally as a global society, to make one size fits all solutions. And the fact of the matter is that not everyone is going to want to to make a TikTok. Not everyone's mm-hmm. going to be like good at it. And, and that's I think that's fine. And I think we have to come to terms with that. That some people. Like, you know, you do an excellent job with long form media. I, I think your podcast is great and, and the, the different content you generate is great. And I think that we need people doing the, th- the things that they, one, that they feel like most comfortable and most well-suited for, um, but two, like a variety of things, right? Not everyone 
that is really great on TikTok could put together a 45 minute podcast or a long form YouTube video. Like th- those are mm. different skills. I'm, I'm just one of these gluttons for punishment that I like <laughs> to try everything yeah. and do a little bit mm-hmm. of everything. Uh, maybe I don't do any one thing especially well, but I try to be a generalist with my approach, but I think we need people that do that. Um, and then we need people that, like really drill into the one thing they do and and do it great. So, and I find that, you know, I try, if, if a new social media pops up, I try it. Uh, and if I'm not mm-hmm. good at it after a while, I'll kind of abandon it. Like I, I use t- uh, Twitter in a very specific way for some specific things and Facebook for other things. I was on Snapchat. I'm technically on Snapchat. I kind of hate it. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> I'm, it doesn't, my brain doesn't yeah. work right for that. Yeah. So I don't, you know, there are people putting out great content on Snapchat. It's not me, right? Um, I'm going to try TikTok for a while. And if it's not working, I'll fo- refocus my energy somewhere else. So I think we have to get to a place where we're not scared to try. But at some point, we're also not scared to cut our losses, right? Mm-hmm. Not falling into this sunk cost fallacy of, oh, I've put in a year of my life to making 60 second videos. I have seven followers. Okay. You know, maybe those seven followers are getting something out of it, but maybe I could refocus my energy where I have a better impact. And so I think, I think the message I would send to our scientific community that sometimes gets bogged down in the way that we do things is give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, okay, you at least try You know, there, there's no shame in trying and deciding that you're not good at something. But I think, I think where we where we get in trouble is like where we're just writing things off and unwilling to even try. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I totally agree with that notion. I think, yeah, some of the older academics do need to at least try to get their message out on new media. Um, because, you know, otherwise it might never get out there, which is sad. So you you mentioned that on well did we actually get into what your your podcast is about did you did you describe it what's the elevator pitch for panthropology uh yeah so <laughs> I guess we really didn't so panthropology is um I what I normal how I normally start the show is that we uh, dive into the lives careers and ambitions of cool plant people. And so I just try to find people that have interesting careers in plant natural sciences. Those can be, again, academic careers, uh, industry careers. They could still be students. I, it doesn't matter to me that much. Um, and, and the show is focused more on the people themselves than the subject matter. Now, we do talk subject matter. We do talk science and plants and all that. But I, I'm more interested in the, the human story of why do people love what they study? Why are people interested? Uh, because we can give information about a topic all day. That human element of, gosh, I'm really into olive trees for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I love studying and I'm interested in them for this. That's more exciting and compelling to someone, I think, wanting to get into the field than just the science itself. For sure. Um, I mean, there's this notion... Um, that, I've, that I've come across recently with, with my guests is that um, it's not necessarily like 
school that gets you into this in this type of stuff it's usually something that's outside like either a hobby or passed down from an like in your case passed down from your uh an elder generation um that gets you into this and it's it's that story aspect that is actually more captivating than just get getting thrown random facts uh you know this is like how science is taught in school so i think that's what the power of of things like podcasting is and, and and new media is that storytelling aspect and i think your your podcast captures that well i really appreciate that and you know i, I we keep it laid back it's it's very casual um uh, i think the best review i ever got um, you know, it's not like I have thousands of them, but the best review I've gotten of the podcast to this date is the show is like overhearing a conversation between two people at a coffee shop. Mm. And that is exactly the vibe I'm going for that. Like you're just listening in on a conversation between two people that are talking about what they do and talking about their lives. And that's the whole vibe I'm going for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned storytelling and telling that story. You know, I, I'm a I'm a book nerd. I love I, I have read like The Lord of the Rings more times than I like care to admit, probably. <laughs> uh, and and I love the storytelling. And Sam Gamgee is certainly the gardener is certainly the best character. He's the hero of the story. <laughs> no but doubt, but yeah. as humans, you know, we have long before we studied science, we told stories. And storytelling, I think, um, both in a fiction and nonfiction sense, is one of the most important things we do as humans for our society, for each other, um, because it tells the story of how do you survive? How do you do it? How do you excel as a you know, human animal or whatever? And um, when we tell when we talk about science, we're telling the story of ourselves right we're telling the story of the universe explaining itself through us the and and, and I, I look at it that way when we talk about science i the facts are great but the way that those facts in, fit into the greater story of everything we see and experience and the story of ourselves i think is far more important the way that we apply that knowledge to the greater story of our universe, I think is one of the most important things we can do as scientists. For sure. Um, and I liked your, your, the new concept that you have where you um, look at some plants and how they interact with cultures like over time. Um, I think that's also adds to the whole storytelling uh, mechanism, but I was, I was really fascinated. I can't wait to, continue that episode about um what was it sleep sleep depri not deprivation uh, caffeine i talked about yeah. yeah the most recent one was uh, caffeine and, yeah. and how we've used yeah so so planthropology is sort of a fake mashup word i made between like plants and anthropology and so mm. i guess the the part i haven't talked about is the overall goal through all these things is is to talk about our human connection to the environment right mm. and and um at the end of my first year of podcasting, so last, I guess, October, I got to interview a uh, archaeobotanist or a paleoethnobotanist who studied uh, studies like what what people like past peoples ate in their agriculture and all mm -hmm. of that. And I got to interview uh, this researcher from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, as well as two of his undergrads. And that for me 
ultimately, oh, that was so exciting. I had so much fun doing that. Um, and, and it kind of got my brain thinking about, okay, I should, you know, really, really lean into this anthropology part of planthropology a little bit more. Mm. I'm not an anthropologist, but I am fascinated by the way that different peoples worldwide, um, have used plants and, 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 uh, as part of either their, uh, rituals or religious practices or uh, medicinal practices and or as something as simple as like you know caffeine how do you how do you stay awake <laughs> you know what do we use to stay mm-hmm. awake and so so far i've done uh, an episode about plants related to the winter winter solstice and we talked a lot about uh, you know european plant traditions and, and northern european plant traditions and then we've done the caffeine one uh, which was kind of, I tried to clever as much of the globe as I can. And um, I'm hoping as I go through this this year, we're doing one episode of that a month, I can find people that, um, you know, are part of some of these cultures and uh, that that we discuss and interview them about how, you know, their culture specifically uses plants and those kinds of things. So I think that's, yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that because that's um, something I'm really excited about working on. I can't wait, wait for the episode on like, local cuisines and how they're made up from plants from all over the world <laughs> like if you think about yeah. like italian food and like where the components come from like it's all over the globe it's quite interesting yeah so what are, what are your favorite like mind-blowing plant facts that you enjoy telling people like what do you tell people to just blow their minds so I think the thing that gets people the most often is when I talk about how fruits are categorized, right? Where, uh, you know, I, I think it's funny that people talk a lot about, uh, oh, a tomato is a fruit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, it's red and it's, but like when you talk about how a pumpkin is a berry, right. Or a, uh, you know, pumpkins, um, um, bananas, watermelons, Mm -hmm. uh, several other things that you don't think are related in any way are, are all berries. Um, and, and that for whatever reason, when I tell people that they like, it messes with people's brains and I'm not really sure why, I guess maybe I'm just used to that fact, but, um, I love to tell people that pumpkins are berries and then just watch their reaction. Uh, (laughs) and it's, Especially, you know, I don't know if it's globally, but in the U.S. for sure, when fall comes around, everyone starts talking about pumpkin spice lattes. And I, I'm, one of my favorite things is to call them berry smoothies, fruit smoothies, <laughs> and just like see people's reaction to that. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, when I remember reading that fact on the internet as well, my mind was blown because it's just because <laughs> when, when you like when you think of the word berry, you just have this image in your mind about what that is and that's so far removed from a pumpkin um that i can see why yeah and and, and a lot of the things that a lot of the things that we call berries aren't even actually berries like strawberries blackberries raspberries none of those are actually berries they're all different things uh a a strawberry is barely even a fruit right like the actual Mm. quote-unquote fruits on a strawberry are the seeds they're called achenes which is a dry type of fruit and the red fleshy part is honestly just like a carrier structure for those seeds and for those fruits. And so like uh, we, we call a strawberry, even a, like either an accessory fruit or an aggregate fruit. And uh, so, yeah, it's not a berry. It's, it's, it's almost closer to a nut and it's weird, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that is weird. Um, and, and, but you know, from a bit, I, I think, 
I've heard I heard a quote one time that was knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in your smoothie. And like, again, I think so much of this, there's some so really funny, interesting facts about plants. But then we get to take that one step farther and talk about how do we actually apply that to life. And that for me is so much fun going through that whole process of discovery to wisdom. So like, what are you doing when you aren't working and, and thinking about plant things? You mentioned you enjoyed reading uh, in your younger days, especially uh, fantasy type novels, I suspect. What else do you enjoy? Yeah, doing? I get into, I get into like campy sci-fi and fantasy. That's kind of like my, my uh, guilty pleasure is just really crappy sci-fi. Um, <laughs> really? I, or I mean, good sci-fi too, but like, yeah. I really like, if there's a book, if there's a book or a novel about like spaceships and like space mm-hmm. opera kind of stuff, I will pretty much listen to it regardless of its quality. <laughs> um, I, I don't, you know, being in academia, I don't have a whole lot of time to sit down mm-hmm. and read for pleasure anymore, mm-hmm. but I do a lot of audiobooks while I'm working mm-hmm. or I'm in the lab or whatever. Uh, I also, I'm a, I'm a musician. I play guitar and bass and a little piano. Um, I am a woodworker. So I make pens and cutting boards and desks and whatever else. Uh, what else do I do? Oh, uh, photography is a, a big hobby of mine. I, I do like I've really the past couple of years gotten into um, astrophotography and doing Milky Way pictures. And uh, that's cool. I, I that's I, I have this nasty habit of finding a hobby and then turning it into a business and like, Oh, I'm going to sell a pen. I'm going to do all the stuff. But photography is one of those things that is kind of just for me. I like to go out and spend time in the middle of nowhere, um, trying to take pictures of the Milky way or stars or the moon or whatever else. Um, and then I like to post them on social media and kind of just leave it there. You know, it's fun that that can be a thing that I, yeah, I'm uh, people buy a print every now and then because they want something specific, but that's one of those hobbies that I'm keeping just for myself. I really enjoy photography. It's pretty cool. Taking pictures of pretty and, and fun things is, I think, one, one of life's great pleasures because you get to immortalize mm-hmm. a, a moment in, in time. I think one of the things I would like to know from my guests now that now that we've survived the uh, year that was 2020 and all the unspeakable horrors that <laughs> happened during that time. Now that that year is over, um, what are you looking forward to for the next year? You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to traveling again, <laughs> like getting to go and just, you know, leave town for a few days. And, and I, I, you know, we probably technically could and wear masks and all that, but I'm, we, we, when my wife and I travel, we don't like to go like see a big city. We would rather go find a small town somewhere in the, in the mountains and just, you know, enjoy a little bit of peace and quiet, but we're, uh, being pretty cautious because we don't want to, you know, we we're a fairly well-developed city where I live with a big medical system. And I'm really nervous about accidentally taking, a pandemic to a little town somewhere where they don't have the infrastructure. And so like we're, we haven't, we haven't traveled at all in like a year and a half. And that's something we really like to do is take road trips and all that. Mm. Um, We're not too far from the mountains where I live. So we like to go and spend some time. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, maybe hopefully by this summer, definitely this fall getting to travel a little. 
and then having campus life kind of get back to normal. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy working with students and having a greenhouse full of students and all of that. And um, I teach a face-to-face class, but it's in a thousand-seat auditorium, so it is minimal engagement with my students because mm-hmm. I'm on a stage. I'm literally on a stage teaching a mm-hmm. hundred students in a thousand-seat room, and so <laughs> like I miss that student engagement and the the student interaction. So yeah, personally, I'm really looking forward to getting to travel professionally, I want our students back in the classroom getting to have like that full experience again. For sure. What what are your top wish list destinations to to get to that you haven't been yet? Um we haven't gotten to travel a whole lot internationally. We've done some. I would love to go see uh like the British Isles, Ireland and um um I've been to England once, but uh you know, get to see some of the, there's no trees where I live. Like, uh, I live on a grassland prairie. And so like every tree here was planted. I just want to go see trees somewhere. I would love to <laughs> go somewhere that things actually yeah. grow. And, uh, um, we want to do, um, like I've never been out to California to see the redwoods. I would love to see mm-hmm. that. I want to go, um, to like, uh, Yellowstone and, and the great, great basin area of the Western U S to find like bristlecone pine trees. That's my favorite tree. Uh, mm. and you know, if you don't know anything about the bristlecone pine, they're thought to be the longest lived individual organism on the planet. Like we don't know how long they live because the oldest ones we found are four or 5,000 years old. And there's only almost certainly ones that are older than that. And so mm. I would love to go see those in person and get to take some pictures of them. So, um, in the U.S., probably yeah, the redwoods. Uh, internationally, uh, I would love to see Australia, um, parts of Europe. You know, my my family's from India, so I've been there a couple times, but I haven't seen much of the country. So I would love to go travel some more in in India and see places where, uh, you know, my family's from and and where my ancestors came from. So, are your are your parents from India? Yeah. So, uh, both of my parents were born in India there. They moved here in the seventies or my mom, my mom and my grandparents moved here in the seventies. And then my dad came for grad school, I guess in the early eighties. And, uh, so I've been a couple of times to, to a couple of different places, but I want to see more of it. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm a first generation American. Mm. Cool. I think for the final question, like, where would you like to see the the plant apology brand go? Like, what some of the things, the notes you would like to hit in terms of social media, audience, getting to do things, potential guests. Like, what would you like? You know, um, I, I I think about this sometimes, and and I obviously I would love to get you know tons of downloads and listeners and all of that. We're doing pretty well, but I'd love to see myself at the top of some of the science charts. You know, I think everyone that does this would love to see that. Um, but honestly, I, I, there's a couple of big guests in mind. We have a, a climatologist named uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, uh, who works at my university. I've been trying to get on her calendar for like a year now, and she's so busy that, which is a good thing. I'm glad she is. She's, she's a great communicator, a great climatologist. I want her to be as busy as she can be right. Telling the story about climate change and how we can save the earth. But I would love to interview her on the show. Um, you know, I would love to get to be a guest on more and more shows as, as time goes forward. Um, but 
I also want to, some of the stories I want to start telling is I, I want to interview more like undergrads on the show. Cause that's, we've only had a couple. Um, and I, I would love to hear stories about people that are just starting this journey and how they got there and all of that. So yeah, I would love to land some big guests, but I also want to, to talk to more um, young students uh, about, about what they do. And so, um, you know, ultimately, uh, yes, I think we all as podcasters, you know, uh, obsessively sometimes look at our analytics and downloads and uh, countries where it was downloaded and all that. I think that's, that's a, a curse we all kind of live with, but um, as long as I can keep telling good stories, I think I'm happy with what I'm doing. And uh, I would love to be able to do more live stuff. Um, you know, that has not really been much of a thing since, um, because of the pandemic since I started, but, uh, at least in my community, I'd love to be able to do more live shows and have people come to the greenhouse and, and like come to a live recording or something like that. So, uh, just kind of casting the net a little bit wider with my guests and, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, if I can keep telling good stories, I think I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing. <clears throat> That's a pretty good outlook, and I wish you all of the best in your future well, endeavors. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> and thanks so much for joining. Why don't you let our audience know where they can find you and your work on the internet? Yeah, so uh, I'm on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as uh different handles, but just search for Planthropology and look for the tree and, and that'll be me. Uh, mm -hmm. um, on any of those platforms, I have a, a Facebook group called Planthropology's Cool Plant People, which is a lot of fun. Um, and then I have uh, my, I guess, I don't want to say personal account, but my more academic account is called The Plant Prof, uh, P-R-O-F. And um, so I'm on Twitter as The Plant Prof and also TikTok as The Plant Prof. Cool, you managed to manage to become the plan prof on Twitter. <laughs> you, I do my best, first. you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Baliram. It's been like a fun chat. Uh, I think we'll, as you uh, both of our shows progress, I think I'll have you on again to see what you get up to in the future. Um, but it's been fun. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Cool. And thanks to the listener at home for listening. We hope you had fun learning with us today. Otherwise, stay tuned and cheers.